Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit. I'm Sean, this is episode 96 and we are mid-Essen fever time. This is the second one of our preview shows, Ronan. Yes, it's a treasure hunt, Sean. We're going to dig into some games which are coming out at Spiel in just a couple of weeks' time and we're going to give you our slightly informed but not having played these games opinion on them we're going to do a quick summary of the rules and then a short discussion not going to go too far because after the show we'll tell you much more about them and then we're going to decide whether they are a treasure and something we think is worth investing your riches in or a trap that will snap your hand off should you be unaware Please do not take our word as verbatim. We are just looking from afar. We're going to crack straight into these. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our episodes, please head to Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, and YouTube. And feel free to give us a thumbs up or a review. So the first game we're going to preview for you this time is Michael Strogoff. It's a one to five player game, takes around 60 minutes, published by Devere and designed by Alberto Corral, who is known for Castaways. Michael Strogoff, if you don't recognise the name, it was a novel by Jules Verne, not one of his best known novels, but one that sort of is a darling of critics nowadays. Probably more famous in continental Europe than it is certainly over here because there's been TV adaptations and film adaptations. And I was checking, the last English language adaptation was in 1937 so i don't blame you if you haven't heard of it what's it all about it's a courier who's got to get from moscow sent by the czar to the town of Irkutsk, because in Irkutsk there is a tartar uprising going on and the czar's brother is under threat and the tartars are looking to disrupt the order of things there is a traitor called Ugarev, who is an ex-colonel from the army, he's been kicked out, and he's helping the rebels. He's very much the nemesis of Michael Strogoff in the novel. As Strogoff makes his way across, and basically you're all representing Michael Strogoff, let's pretend you were all different couriers who are sent by the Tsar, and one of you is going to get through and be the hero of your own novel. You're going to meet the various people that Strogoff meets in the novels as you go along, and those allies are going to help you. And the way you're going to go along is you're going to advance along a path. The path has different destinations and the destinations are linked to various decks of cards. For example, if you're in Moscow, you have slightly less dangerous cards. And as you go on and you get closer to a cook, so you're going to have more dangerous cards because these cards reveal dangers and you're each going to have your individual path. Every time you go to advance, you flip one over. The dangers which are on there, if you reveal any duplicates, then you're going to lose energy, you're going to have to turn cards over, and it's going to prevent you from moving onwards until you deal with the situation you have. So how are you going to deal with them? Well, to resolve these dangers, you have cards which will allow you to cover up dangers. As you cover up dangers, you're going to be able to take the cards out of your route. So I've dealt with that, I've moved on through, and you're going to be able to keep some of those, which kind of levels you up. In order to help you doing that, like I say, you can use these allies and like one of the allies allows you to roll dice. And when you roll the dice, the level ups that you've got will be activated by a number on that dice and that allows you to do special powers. The two actions you can do so far, you can advance along your path, which is flipping the cards to see the dangers. You can resolve the dangers before or after you've travelled or you can rest because I've been talking about well, lots of different cards. So 
When you rest, you can take action cards into your hand. Those are the cards you spend to resolve dangers. You can regain your energy because as you're going through and different things happen to you, your energy is going to drop down. If you've got zero energy, you're going to die. Or when you travel unsuccessfully, some of the cards in your own path flip that face down. You can flip them back face up again and then you can deal with them and then you can look to move onwards. And it's all a race to get to a cuts first to deal with the traitor. Now, speaking of the traitor, once every player has had their turn there's always a traitor's phase and all those action cards i'm talking about that you take out the deck to do various things they have icons down the bottom now they're not all bad but they do all activate in the traitor's phase now and you reveal a certain number of them and they might actually allow players to draw action cards or they might cycle those allies through there's six of them but only four are ever in play and that's very reminiscent of the novel that michael struggle kept meeting these different people as he was moving along other things that can happen from the traitor phase are the Tartars, the Horde, can start moving towards Moscow. And if they ever get to Moscow, then it's game over. There's Sangara, the spy. Now, she'll come out and whoever is closest to getting to the Colonel, the traitor, she will sort of sit amongst their path and slow them down. There's a little bit of a catch-up mechanism there. Once anyone reaches Irkutsk, then... They need to clear all the danger symbols that they've built up on their path, on their journey, that are left over, using cards from their hand. Then you need to flip over more cards with danger icons, equal to whatever Ogareth's strength is at the time, depending upon how long it's taking you to get there. And you're going to have to deal with those dangers as well. And for each danger that you can't deal with, you're going to lose that energy that's been going up and down during the game. If you don't defeat him, that's it. That's your chance to win gone and the other players will be trying to then get to where cooks and fight the colonel and like i say you're racing to get there ahead of each other but you're also racing to get there before the tartars can reach moscow all very much linked into the story of this novel michael strogoff sean any thoughts i've never heard of michael strogoff before going into this game but the passion that they seem to have for this novel and trying to interweave everything as it happened in the books kind of tells a story in that rule book and even at the end they explain each of the locations that he visits and how it affects him in the book and yeah I, th- I think the passion definitely comes through and i really like the art and the design style in this one as well. yeah like all devere games they've made it look attractive and i kind of read a synopsis on the novel when we're looking at the game to try and see how much they invoke that theme and much like you i really feel like the mechanics invoke the adventure of this journey and the unknown and you sort of you pause and you prepare and you use your allies then you head off into the wilderness and there is always that impetus to push you forward and to race and to get there because the game is saying the Tartars are coming and the traitors getting stronger and these other guys are all these couriers are racing against you and it's the push pull between preparing and just going for it and getting to where you need to get to I both love And I'm a bit worried by the sheer ambition of this game. There's a lot of working parts, and they're not little working parts either. There is that sort of almost semi-cooperative thing where you're trying to keep the the army from the door. It's the race aspect. It's the fighting off the danger. And still in keeping with the book, using the special characters that come in and out. it's, It's a very ambitious project, Rona. It is ambitious, but to me, they've distilled it down nicely into not a lot of mechanisms. 
while there's a lot of stuff going on, they, they tend to use the same mechanisms. The cards that deal with the dangers, that's how you do the end game as well. It's not like you get to the end and then they're playing a completely different game. It's actually kept it fairly small. It's just a few decks of cards and a simple board. I think a lot of the size of it and the complexity is in your own mind where you're going through the highs and lows of the danger and the story and getting really pulled into it and wondering, oh, geez, maybe I need to push my luck right now. I do like that. It kind of reminds me of an orchestra. The whole of the orchestra has got to be playing and in time with each other and in tune. If one section lets it down, then the whole thing could fall down horribly. I'm in a much better mood than I was in the last episode, Ronan, so I am going to give this one a hopeful treasure. I am particularly touched by the fact that any Michael's mother's cards that you draw, they really help you out in the end fight. I, I like a game that, that reaches back to your mother and says thanks. So for me, not just for that reason, and unexpectedly, because I knew nothing about this IP at all before looking into it, I've definitely gone treasure for Michael Strogoff. Very good. Right. It was always going to happen. We were always going to feature the Big Feld game in these episodes, and here is Merlin. It's coming from Queen Games, designed by Stefan Feld and... Michael Reineck, who did uh, one of my favourite games, Pillars of the Earth. Two to four players. King Arthur is searching for a worthy heir. And we are the Knights of the Round Table and we're vying to impress Arthur. So on the table you're going to have three areas. You've got the main board, which features in the centre of the round table, where you're going to be playing dice. And the rest of the board is separated into six principalities. You have your player board, which contains henchmen and their spaces for flags traitors and shields i'll talk about those in a little while and then off to the side you've got a terrain board which is all about area control so on your turn you're going to roll four dice you're going to have three of your color and one white merlin dice yours are going to move your knight around the round table in a clockwise direction and you are going to do the action that you land on if you choose the white merlin dice you can move merlin in any other di- any direction Why are you doing this? Well, you're landing on these action spots and they are going to help you gather resources. You can build on the terrain I mentioned with those resources. You can place your henchmen. Now, your henchmen have four separate powers that they can do when you place them. You can place influence markers on those six principalities on the main board. And you can gather flags and shields. Shields are there to fend off traitors, and there's that mechanism that Mr. Feld always likes to bring into his games, that one thing that interrupts your play. The flags are basically one-off rule-breaking powers that you can use during the game. You can also gain Excalibur, who helps you kill traitors and give you points for killing them off. There are six rounds, and you're going to score after two, four, and six. And the scoring is area control on the main board, area control on the terrain. You have mission cards in this game, which are going to also score you points. And as I said, the traitors, they're going to give you minus points if they are not defeated. That's an overview of Merlin Ronan. How are you feeling about it? I know you were quite excited, obviously, because it's a Feld. So, Stefan Feld does a Rondal game which is interesting in and of itself. But obviously he can't just do a flat-out Rundle game. He's added those dice for how many spaces you can move and the rest of it. Then I feel like he's reached into a lucky dip of gaming guff, picked it up and just fired it all at that Rundle game and gone, have all of that as well. What? Has he... What? <laughs> What's I, that? 
It's a bit, I, I get where you're coming from. So on the side looking, I was like, okay, so there's area control on the central board. Okay, that's interesting. And then here's another board that there's area control. Environs. <laughs> <on. laughs> like, and the like, you get resources, but you just need one resource to build one castle. It's not like there's resource management. It's just oh, uh, and here's another thing. Yeah. Have a cube to build a castle to do area control yeah, over yeah, there. One off, three different things. Things you can there you go. Ah, 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 here, by the way, ha- have some missions. Here you go. Have some mission. Co- mission. They're not missions. They're just other things to do. <laughs> Tra- traitors? What, tra- what am I? What are they got to do with this? <laughs> yeah, I think the missions get interesting because there is actually like uh, an advanced variant or, or included in the game one of their queenies or something where you, you can actually have a decision whether to trade the missions in for points or an ongoing power. So that's no way, more you interesting. Can, you can do something in this game and get a few points. No way. <laughs> Back off. What's that? So, how many different ways do you need to score a few points? Now, I love Stefan Fell games. In a lot of them, there are different ways to score a few points. There is a limit. It's probably before double figures that I want of ways to score a few points. <laughs> I just look like, and this scores and that scores and these scores. and that. At least there's going to be a clever way that is stopping you from doing what you want to do. All right, at least then you're going to have to... No, no. Because like a third of the spaces on the roundel are ways to get around the limitation of the roundel. So there are ways that you go here, so you, you move something that was there, and now you move it there. Or you go here, but actually you don't activate this one, you activate another one. Or you choose a different way, or you add one or two. And there's so much mitigation in that roundel that you're like, aren't you taking away the whole point of a roundel that it's interesting that... I can only go a certain number of spaces and I have to time where I want to go. I don't even think of it as a rondel. I just think of it as an action track like that you move across and you kind of manipulate your your way around that action track. But so many it. manipulations. Yeah. That it's, mm. And it's very hard to do a quick preview like this as well with it yeah. because if you try and take out one particular mechanism, it's going to be all right. You can use flags, which will mitigate an, an action you do. Okay, great. You can use shields and they fight off traitors. Okay, good. But then there's Excalibur to help you fight off traitors. Okay, good. Then you've got the Holy Grail. What? Why have I got a hundred billion things? I get where you're coming from. I think there are, there are some some interesting factors. I kind of like that you can mess around with Merlin. You can put it out of reach of others because you can see what they've rolled. Yeah, but you can't just mess around with Merlin. Merlin can move in both directions. And then you've also got Merlin's staffs you can play to double up on Merlin. And you, oh, another thing? <laughs> we were talking about in the Vault episode when Natalie was uh, nominated Aquasphere. I said, I really like Aquasphere. It's got one or two too many things going on. Whoa, Merlin. <laughs> um, I don't think Merlin does. I think it just has too much of the same. I think it has too much manipulation of the Rondel and too much area control. I think that's my issue. I don't think there's that much going on. But it's, it's, it's just lots of little things. We're kind of hopping on the same thing. Until we play it, it's going to be really difficult to give a, a decent understanding because we don't know how all those many, many things link together. But uh, surprisingly, and for me, this game is dead under its weight of its own nonsense. And currently, it's a trap. I'm going to try and play it. It's gone off my buy list. 
exciting, exciting news. That, that is a turnaround. For me, there's definitely bits that I really like the look of. The messing with Merlin. I like the area control. Maybe not the double area control. I think it looks really nice. It looks beautiful. Could it be the, the mix of tactics and luck? Could that elevate? I don't know. I have much more fears than I did originally, but I I do have faith in Mr. Feld and I do have faith in Mr. Rainex, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just say it's a slight treasure. It's her Feld and her Rainex to you, by the way. <laughs> okay. My, <laughs> just, my apologies. Keeping it straight. Okay, we're gonna move on to game three. It's Santa Maria, a one to four player game. It takes forty five to ninety minutes from a porter designed by Eilif Svensson, who designed Mangrovia and Capital Lux, which got a lot of love in our review of twenty sixteen. It's also designed by Christian Amundsen Osby, who designed Escape and Automania and also Capital Lux. So, what are we trying to do? We are going to each run a new world colony in, let's say, the 17th century, something like that. And we have three turns to do this. We're going to be taking polyomino tiles and we're going to be filling up our own colony board. And then we're going to be activating those tiles to get goods to ship, to train monks to go into one of three different areas and to gather conquistadors. Plus, also gain in population, which will be represented on those tiles. So, what can you do on your turn? You can pay to lay either a two or three space in a corner tile in your colony. On those tiles, they show buildings, which you can then later activate. They show roads, and some of those roads, as I said, have population on there. You can activate those buildings. There's different ways of doing it. You can use a coin, which you get from trading those goods and what have you, and that'll activate one building, then you'll cover that building with a coin, and it'll do whatever it does. We'll get to what the buildings do in two secs. The other ways of activating buildings are there are common dice available, and if you take a common dice, your grid that you're placing these polyominoes onto, they've got numbered columns and numbered rows, and the common dice will activate one column. And you'll activate all the buildings in there and then you'll place the dice to cover up the bottom building so that can't be activated again in this year or this turn. Or you can take a personal dice and they will activate the rows and do exactly the same thing. They'll activate all of them, but they'll block the right hand most building in that at the time. What do the buildings do? They allow you to get or then trade resources which basically gets you money or they allow you to fulfill shipping contracts which are available and when you fulfill shipping contracts you take them and put them to the right side of your board and they're going to come back into the game later you can train conquistadors and that's going to go up on a track and whoever's got the highest is going to score most points down to the lowest each year and it resets or with the monks you can train them as scholars which will give you in-game powers as missionaries which will give you their bonus or for the bishop which will give you end-game VPs. In each turn, the player decides how many actions they want to take, taking one at a time, and then the player's going to retire. Then they get to get one extra action when you retire, and then you get a bonus for all your shipping. And your shipping is when you fulfill those shipping contracts, you take the tile and you lay it to the right-hand side. They're of different types where you lay them, and they build up over time, so you get a bigger bonus over the three rounds. And also their shipping, as mentioned before, are going to give you end-game VP for set collection. The VP you're scoring is actually called happiness. At the end of the game, you're going to score happiness for your colonists, for your monks, for having your harbour full of those shipping tiles. And each of those shipping tiles also gives you an end-game bonus VP for having done something. Sean, that is how you play Santa Maria. Right, so going straight to the looks of the game. There's elements I like and there's elements I don't like. The negative side of it, it really doesn't convey that theme. 
at all. It, it just doesn't feel like there's any theme at all once you start looking at the game. But the iconography is very clear. And in a game where you're laying down tiles and you're having to score on a grid system, that's very good. I agree with you that it's quite functional, but I think it also looks dated. And it's not a game that's going to attract on looks at all. And leading into the theme, not only do I think the looks don't give you much theme, I think that overall, the game, I wasn't feeling the theme at all. And why am I only running it for three years? And how am I able to train monks so quickly? And how do you become a bishop so quickly? (laughs) I wasn't... mm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I was a bit harsh in my notes. I actually wrote down it looks a bit cheap. Oh... Not that much production value. You said you're in a better mood this episode. I know. Why? Why? I haven't said it's a trap or a treasure yet. (laughs) Cheap. It's that Merlin. What I do like about it is that sort of dice spatial action mechanism that gives you something to work towards on your player grid. I really like that. And thinking about what do I need to put where? How am I going to score it? In what ways am I going to score it? In different ways. I like that a lot. It's a bit dice city, isn't it? It is, but you're... I didn't say that as a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a zero-sum as Dice City. I think you've got more control over it than Dice City. I do like the activation. I like there's different ways of activating. You can use your coins and all the rest of it if you really need to use a building. I think there's a lot of flexibility in the game. You can choose your shipping tiles, and you're very much directing where you want to go. But what am I doing? Like, thematically, I don't feel like I'm actually doing what it says I'm doing. Yeah, I get what you're saying, Ronan. And going back to that point of over three rounds, that seems very quick to be building up an engine and trying to get to a place where you think you've really affected the game and how how it's gone. Yeah, but that engine is definitely going to build because the tiles stay in place and the ships stay in Mm. place and the ships should link into what you're trying to do with your tiles. I think it's there. It's definitely. Mm. I also think it feels quite gentle. There's not a lot going backwards and forwards between the players. You're kind of building up your own little thing and doing your own little thing and gentle, gentle. Yeah, I think in the time frame that this plays out in, it's about 45 minutes or so, they're saying. I well, think, it goes to 90 with four players. Well, yeah, four players, I suppose. I think there's enough different sort of actions and mechanisms within there just to keep the game ticking along and keep it interesting. I wouldn't like to go to 90 minutes with this one for sure. I don't know if it could hold my attention for that length of time, but I just can't see it going to 90 minutes. So, Sean, for Santa Maria, is it a treasure or is it a trap? I actually hadn't made my mind up before, and I still haven't made my mind up. Uh, I've got 50-50 written down. Uh, I think if it doesn't go long, I'd be happy to play it. I'm not sure that I'd pay the money to bring it into my collection, but I don't think I'd ever turn down a game if it didn't go to 90 minutes. I think that's the key for me. If it goes down to 45 minutes, even an hour, I think it, it sits within its welcome quite nicely. So that would be it. It's a treasure at 60 minutes. It's a, it's a trap at 90 minutes. Oh, <laughs> you fence it. <laughs> Not that I've made a decision either. Hey, I'm torn. I think lower player count because there's little interaction. But I guess with a higher player count, people will be taking those common dice more often. But in that case, you just build up your rows because you use your own dice. Oh, I am torn on this one. I'm leaning towards a treasure, maybe. Sure, go with that. Sean, you're also taking us out into the the nautical world in a similar time period. I am. We're off to the Dutch East Indies. 
Designed by Martin and I ain't even trying. I'll spell it. It's L-O-O-I-J. No idea how to say that. It's from Keep Exploring Games, one to four players, and there's two versions at the show. One is €36 for the standard version, or you can pay €65 for the deluxe version. That has, like, plastic minis and metal coins, etc. So it's the 17th century in the East Indies, and you are a nation trying to find spices before the other nations. You're going to have two ships. Your actions are you're going to move load unload transfer goods trade with islands and the islands have cards and when you get to an island you're going to pick up a card and see what they offer you and you can trade with them you can battle there's going to be two pirate ships knocking around and they're going to move by a dice that gives the points of the compass and you can also battle the other players you can also upgrade your ship and you can do this by upgrading your sails to make it quicker, your cargo so you can hold more, and your cannons so you can fight off the other players and the pirates. What are you trying to do in this one? Well, there are four different types of spices. The first person to collect two of each of the four spices, and I think pepper is a wild card, so that's the fifth spice, and you have to deliver them to your home port, and the first person to do that wins the game. Ronan, I'm actually going to start off here. Go for it. It's like somebody said, let's play a game of Merchants and Marauders. How do we make this a lot worse? (laughs) (laughs) This good mood has not lasted very long, has it? It lasted three games. Come on. They've stripped absolutely everything out. When you go to an island to get a spice, you just flip over a card. And if you've already got that spice, you just have to put the card back on top of the island. What if it's like the spices you want are buried under the spices you've already got? What are you going to do? And you trade random goods. If you've got enough cubes, then happy days. If you don't have enough cubes in your boat, then you better go back and get some more cubes. Somebody else might take that card when you get there. There might might be more. You might have to stay at home again. And it's not like you've got a very big hold either. So you're just dabbling backwards and forwards with a random chance of pulling. Wow, who... This is not a modern age board game. I don't really... This was successful on Kickstarter. Huh? Do you think, all right, surely it looks good if it's successful on Kickstarter. I don't even think it looks good. Uh. It's got this background of the sea on the board, but it's like a close-up of the sea. Because of these swirls and whirlpools and stuff, but it's as if you're looking at 30 foot of sea as opposed to 30, 300 miles of sea. Why have a whirlpool in there? Why have it? doesn't make it you don't interact on. with it or you don't seem to interact unless they've got plans for expansions but the whirlpool's bigger than the islands there's nothing new or exciting from what i can tell from afar about the dutch east indies they're the worst of pick up and deliver where you're literally just picking up and delivering randomly if you can maybe uh, my only question left about it is, why did you pick this one as a treasure Was it the theme and you didn't know anything about it? Or Yeah, yeah, I picked it up based on... I, I always go for that sort of merchant and marauder type of game. I love that era of history. I think I did one last... I can't remember the name of it, where we did we previewed a game very similar. Captains of the Golden Age. Oh, good man, good man, good man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, so I'll always go for that type of games, and that's why this one came, because as you said, it was a successful Kickstarter, and once I started delving into it, like, it was paper thin. Where's the game? Oh, we don't need to belabor this point anymore. Uh, Trap. 
crap. Okay, moving on. <laughs> yeah, there's another pirate game coming up later. Hopefully that will create... Maybe, maybe. We'll see whether that gets something more positive. Okay, my last game for this half is Edge of Humanity. It's a two to five player game. It takes 30 to 45 minutes from Golden Egg Games. It is designed by Pinny Shakatai's his first design and Anad Goldstein, who did City Council and Prime Time. This is a post-apocalyptic deck builder with various scenarios built into the box in which you are looking to create a colony by building your deck, obviously, adding buildings to your deck and getting people into your colony to score SP up survival points now the game has got three different scenarios built into it in which you're going to have different buildings and different events and different survivors come into you so they are a pandemic in you're based in new york city a nuclear holocaust and then you're there in uh, new mexico afterwards or an alien invasion in which you're in nebraska attempting to rebuild your colony you have a maximum of nine rounds but if any players manage to score 11 SP before that, the game is going to finish on that round. First thing you do is you have an event card flips over and that's got some flavor text, which is going to build the story. And also it's got something bad that's going to happen to you. You might have to throw away some cards or it might damage a survivor or make something more difficult for you somehow. Usually there's a choice involved in that. And if you can't fulfill the need, you're going to lose some life points in the game. It's possible to die if your life points run out. What that means is you miss the rest of the round and then you just come back in again on full health the next round. That might not sound too serious, but I think in a game with a maximum of nine rounds maybe it's a bit more serious than it initially sounds so what can you do on your turn you can play a card for the action printed on it from your hand and those are going to be various actions which are going to help you do all the things that i'm about to discuss you can start building a building in order to do that the resource within the game really is supplies and lots of cards have got a certain amount of supplies on them and buildings require a certain amount of supplies to build now you don't have to have all those supplies in your hand you can just start a building with at least one supply and the car gets tucked underneath it and then in subsequent rounds you may add to that building to then obviously have it completely built and those buildings again are going to score you points and also they're going to give you special powers quite often or increase your hand size or something on those lines now the interesting thing is whenever you do have to spend supplies in this game they get thrown in the discard pile it is not a game in which your deck is constantly building with the currency and you know i've got this three supply card it's going to come around again and again if i spend that three supply card it has gone back in the deck and i'm gonna to have to get some more supplies somehow once you've taken your action you can then choose to discard cards from your hand because then you all get to refill your hands back up to five ready for the trade phase. There are columns of cards available. It's one more than the number of players in them and they'll have a minimum of two cards at the beginning of the round although some of the actions you take may take cards out of these columns. And then everyone is going to face down, lay a certain number of cards with some supplies on them if they choose to or I think usually you're going to choose to. Everyone flips over the cards and whoever has put in the most supplies and Everything you pay, again, has to get thrown away. It's going to get first choice of a column of cards, which are going to come into your discard pile. Next person with those supplies and so on, ties broken in player order, and then you're going to move on. And it's funny in that you draw cards at, in the middle of a round rather than at the end, because that's how your supplies you spend. You're preparing to go for the next round on what's left in your hand. Whenever your draw pile runs out, you then get to choose a survivor from a lineup of five, although they will end one will constantly drop off if no one's choosing it and again those survivors they're going to cost you supplies to get into play then they're going to be permanent and they're going to give you bonuses ways of scoring points or ways of scoring end game points as i said each scenario gives you different 
cards and actually even different mechanisms as you go through. And once you're comfortable with the three scenarios they provide, there's some guidance in the rulebook of how to build your own scenarios up. Sean, Edge of Humanity, a thematic deck builder. Did it ring your bell? Oh, ding, ding. It's still ringing, man. You know I like me a deck builder, and you know I like me a bit of post-apocalyptic theme. Marry the two together, and I'm interested. So, diving into the mechanisms, the first of the mechanisms I really liked was the idea of a bid rather than a straight-up buy. So in Dominion, you just go in, you buy, um, I've got four coins, I'm going to buy that. On this one, you're bidding, so you've got to think what you really want, what the other players want, how much they're going to pay for it. You've also got to be mindful of the rest of the round and keeping things back so that you can do other actions. So really like that mechanism, Ronan. I love it. And here's something that I really think is uh, is interesting to me is that you have to bid supplies to get it. You need all supplies, obviously, to do all the other things in the game. And you could get yourself in a supply hole, I feel sure. If you bid too many and suddenly realise, wow, I've got like two supplies left in this whole deck. And you have to be aware. And it feels important. Oh, I've got four supplies in my hand, but I really want to finish this building. That's going to help me out. But I've only got a certain number of rounds. So don't get in this hole with no supplies. But there's a force speed to the game, and it makes all these decisions tough. I feel like it is, a, as it should be with this theme, you know, post-apocalyptic, every decision should be tough. Everything you choose to give away, you should be like, oh, I don't know. And there's multi-uses for every card. That's, that is dinging my bell. As you said, Ron, the fact that you have to give up those cards. So normal deck builders, you, you're going to get into a point where you've got loads, and it's just getting those really high point cards or... You can buy lots on a turn. This one, you're constantly fighting, constantly battling to get those resources into your hand. Yeah, it's a thing we're seeing more. We talked about Aeon's End and Time of Crisis, their deck building aspects, and there's non-shuffling, and it's not standard cycling of cards. And this is even a step further than that with the non-standard cycling of cards. You're not building a deck, you're building and deconstructing at the same time and constantly making those decisions. I like that. In the last year or two, we've really seen this evolution away from just, I get cards, my deck gets bigger, and then I run it, into I'm constantly got that push and pull. Okay, for me, Ronan, Edge of Humanity was a game that was on my radar, but now it's it's pretty much an insta-buy. I'm going to pick this up at the show by hook or by crook. I'm going to do it. You'll get in there before me. You might have to get me a copy if they're scarce. Whatever it takes, it's a treasure. It is. I really love the scenario idea. I think it's ripe for expansions ready to come in. Here's another scenario. Here's a scenario that possibly mini expansions, whatever it might be. And very much for me, looking like being a big hit, I also love the idea of this one. Totally. Edge of Humanity, a treasure from me as well. Okay, so last game from me on this half of the show. It's Space Freaks. It's from Lotaplet.fi. Designed by Max Wickstrom. Playing two to four players. What is it? Well, the players are going to enter the 34th season of the most dangerous and destructive show in the galaxy, the Arena of Annihilation. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. So there's the theme. You're going to battle, and it's going to take place on a central board. This is going to be divided into little hexagons, which are the spaces that you move around on. You're going to attack each other's base and defend your own, and there's various other hexes that you can interact with we'll talk about those in a minute first up though you're going to design your f- 
space freaks. You're going to get dealt some random cards and you're going to put together the head, the arms, the torso and the legs. And each of those is going to give you a unique freak to send into the arena. Once you've designed them, you're going to deploy them into your home base. So the actions that you can employ are move, attack. You can use your freak special action. You can build and use turrets and bunkers. Turrets are going to defend your base or defend your area. Bunkers, you're going to be able to go into them and defend yourself. You can also use interactive hexes, which are dotted around the board. And these are going to help you heal. You're going to change sponsor cards. And sponsor cards are special equipment that sponsors donate to you or special abilities that sponsors are going to give you. At the beginning of every round, the arena master is going to play a card and he's going to set up the round conditions or do something funny to that round. At the end of six rounds, you're going to score points by destroying other people's space freaks. You're going to get points by hitting their base, occupying their base, completing the mission card and for occupying certain hexes at the end of each round. The winner is the person who amasses the most points by then. Space freaks, Ronan. Oh, Sean. <laughs> now, this is going to be tough, folks, and I'm sorry. And if you're looking for an objective preview, this probably isn't going to be it. So maybe listen to everything that Sean says, because this pushes almost all of my negative buttons from the off without having played it. And I'm sorry, guys, but I don't like the look. I don't like the look of the rule book. I don't like the look of the game. I don't like the look of the board. I none of it i'm shaking my head i'm shaking my head at you do you like the look of it i don't like the look of the board so much i think it's functional yeah. uh it could have been it could have been a bit more stylistic but i kind of like this kind of like a kind of a retro sci-fi feel to the the artwork for the freaks and the and the arena master etc i i can't really come out and argue with you straight up and say yeah no it's a great looking game it's not but i don't hate it like even the layout of the rule book made it hard for me to pass and look at and like bright pink boxes here and there and I'm like, Oh, you're kinda of shouting at me a bit, okay. <laughs> you don't like shouting in text, do you? I don't like <laughs> discuss that. <laughs> some of our podcasts are listed in capitals and some of them are not all in capitals. Yeah. I do the capitals, <laughs> I just got told off. Stop shouting at people <laughs> I'm such a grumpy so and so You really are? I know, I can live with it though. I'm starting to inhabit in that skin. Okay. There are very few arena combat games that I like. There's very, it's, it's a genre that I look at. There are so many arena combat games, and so few of them are any good. And usually it's part of like a small aspect. You go to Spartacus, probably the fighting bit is the worst part of that game. There's a reason. Arena games don't often work. Any I like, I'd kind of call Nurishima Hex an arena game ish. That one I like. I can't think of too many more. I, I don't know why there's not uh, good arena games, because the premise in itself sounds really interesting, and you would imagine that the great minds of board game design could come up with a really interesting arena game design. So, yeah, I don't know why we've not really hit the heights with that We, one. we are starting to nibble at Shadespire, so... Yeah, maybe, true, true, that could be, maybe, that could be the mm-hmm. one. First, when I was first looking at this one, I was kind of thinking that it's kind of crazy mayhem where everyone's, especially four players, everyone's attacking everyone. 
could this be the game that I wanted Adrenaline to be? Now, I, I enjoyed my initial plays of Adrenaline. It's kind of fallen flat since then for me. It's not really the game I wanted it to be. Could this be that game where it's just a free-for-all, slap-happy, having a laugh? Mm, maybe, maybe. That game sounds like hell. <laughs> that sounds like a game I do not want to darken my gaming table. <laughs> that is the absolute opposite of what I want Adrenaline to be and the opposite of why Adrenaline wasn't a favourite for me. I want Adrenaline to be a thinky shooter where you were going down corridors and laying traps and being smart and there was some hidden movement. And when you saw each other, you saw each other and you're like, oh, they were there. Oh, which way have they gone? And you, know, you can lay proximity mines and things. That's what I was hoping for. When you go to this zany, crazy, wacky, oh, look how goofy we are, guys. Okay. I hate it. I hate, I just do not, like, no attraction to me whatsoever. Zaniness doesn't equal funny or fun. Nobody said zany. Crazy. Woohoo. Look how cuckoo we are. The whole thing, like, building your own freaks. And like, maybe it works for some people. Oh, right? that is perfect. Oh, I love it. No. I love it. No, mate. No. Building your Look how own funny creatures. this population is. Just mismatched cards. With, and all they are are stats. They're just stats. Yeah, but it's... it's look how zany he looks. Look at his tentacles. You've got no no invention in your head. You you can't can't sit there and think, I'm building something. I have invention. Which is why don't force invention on. Don't try and tell me it's zany. Give me the game. Let me make the fun and the funny out of it. Gamers, we'll make our own fun. We'll make our own jokes. Don't force them in there. Don't crowbar it in. Don't sit here watching Nickelodeon for a reason. I don't need the way forced down my throat. They have to give you something to go on. Otherwise, you'd just say it was dry. What am I getting from this? Who am I? Sure, we made jokes out of this war of mine. You I did. think we're okay. You did. Well, all right. Our group did. We don't need forced funniness. It's not forced. I don't think it's... Where's the forced funniness? You're just making... It's all the presentation and the Darina of Annihilation and Welcome from the Renouncer and Deathbot Zini 2092. (laughs) You've got to have a theme. You just... what, What do you want to say? Okay, here's things that you make up. You make up your own creature. You're in a random place. Go and decide yourself where you are. If it was that and more ah, serious and you were grump. combining DNA and there was a reason for doing it and maybe there was a, a little bit of resource management behind that's why this will go with that and it won't work that way around, a bit of thinking to it, I would prefer that. And then you take a creature that some thought went into creating and you made decisions and put it into combat. That would be more interesting to me than here's some zany cards that mismatched and there's no sense in building it. Right. I, I feel no ownership to this. Call it a trap and get your grumpy behind off my my airwave. Yeah, not my genre, not my style of presentation. Trap, 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 trap. I love that you design your freaks. I love the theming and the presentation. I'm not big on the artwork, especially the board. I love the idea of playing this with four people. For me, it's a definite treasure. I'm going to go and give Ronan a soothing bath, see if we can calm him down. And well, you bathing me is not going to soothe me. <laughs> I'm terrified.
moving onwards, we are going to discuss Parley, a four to six player game, 60 to 120 minutes from Lunatic Board Games, their first release, designed by Ali Furhat Tamur, again his first design. The players are up to six pirate captains, and each of them are secretly working for a different country around the Mediterranean. The board is made up of 24 connected hexes, which represents the Mediterranean Sea, and represents 24 different ports in that area of the world. There are four Admiral tokens, which will start in certain places on the board. There are 20 port cards. They don't represent a certain place on the board, but what they do is when you flip them, at the start of a round, there's not one there. They show coalitions of the six powers in the game. Three of the powers are going to be defending a port, and three of them are going to be attacking a port. They are different on each card, so this is a game of shifting alliances. And each captain who works for a country is going to want their country to win either the attack or defence of a port once that happens. You take turns being captain, and the captain can do various things. The first thing they can do is start a siege. They take an anchor token and they point it to a space on the board and whatever port card is showing, that battle now takes place at that port. The captain then decides whether players are going to play open or closed for the bidding that's going to take part to see which side wins, the attacking or the defending. And each of the players has got a hand of six cards and they will show swords or shields. Swords, if you play them into a battle, will assist the attackers. Shields will assist the defenders. Or there are special powers which cancel a card or cancel the whole vote or reverse the result or force open bidding or allow you to go last or wherever it may be when you reveal all the cards either if it's open everyone has to play them in front of themselves so you can see who they're backing or close you shuffle them up and you flip them all over whichever side has got the most swords or shields is going to win that particular battle and take control of that port now each port can only be fought over once and the captain's going to break ties by the way and you put in counters of the colour of that power, so three wherever there's been a battle, into the port space. And those powers are going to score one victory point for that port and every other port that has already been fought over that is connected to that port that has a counter of their colour in it. So if you can get a string of six ports together that have all won whether it's been attacking or defending, it doesn't matter once the counters are down. If you win that point now, it's going to score six points for that particular power. And obviously, the captain off that power is going to want that to happen while still trying to remain secret. The other things the captain could do is reallocate the admiral. Now, the admiral start in a space, and once per game, each admiral can be reallocated, and it gets flipped over. It won't move again. And that's part of the spatial thing where you're trying to break up people's chains and stop them from scoring huge points if you think, well... You'll know if they're not on your side, and you can't, obviously, you're all on different sides. The other thing you can do is you can choose to blackmail another captain. You've got a hand of cards which say, I think you're working for such and such country, and you're trying to work out from what cards they've been playing which country they're back in. And when you play that card on someone, they can either say, No, you're wrong, the card does not get revealed, but they don't pay you any money. They can say, Yes, you're right. They don't, again, reveal the cards. Everyone else doesn't know what country it is. So they're going to be trying to guess. Hold on. Did he say that they were the Turks? Or did he guess something else? Trying to guess and counter guess and bluff and counter bluff. They say yes and pay you. Or they can say maybe they have to pay you some money now, a little bit. But then they have to pay you more at the end of the game if you were correct. And the idea of that is to try and not make it too obvious who you are. So 
everyone's going, oh, well, it's definitely, it's definitely Turks. Then someone plays a blackmail card, and they're right. You might want to say maybe, just to put everyone else off, or whatever you want to do. Anyway, the other thing you can do is we can become a privateer, and you have to pay to do that. There's one privateer card for each country, and you take that card, and now at the end of the game, you're going to score 10% of that country's VPs. They're going to pay them to you for being their privateer. Plus, you're also going to get some silver from the supply for that. You can choose your own country if you want to. Uh, your country's going to retain the payment. They won't pay you, but it stops anyone else from stealing points for your own country. And again, that's going to be part of the bluff and counter bluff, where the people can read what you're doing. There are going to be 20 sieges overall, and at the end of the game, each player is going to score victory points for the victory points accumulated by their country and all the silver they've been able to acquire during the game, whether by blackmail or not spending it on doing other things like becoming privateers. And you're then going to lose any maybes that you've said in that blackmail and you have to pay the player if they guessed it correctly. Sean Parley, very small company. It's got components which aren't great. They're not really up to standard of modern board games. It's got a rule book that's not in perfect English. I feel like this may not have got off on the right foot with you. It doesn't look great. And to be honest with you, I wouldn't have given this one a second glance if you hadn't have picked it as one of your choices to bring to the fold today. Now, having delved into it a little bit, I think there's a really interesting blend of mechanisms. I already think you've got to be quite covert about who you back, when you back, because you don't want the players to know who you're looking to win. I don't necessarily know that that mechanism in which you're trying to guess and you, you challenge the person and you say, I think you're that. I'm not sure how necessary that was because there's already social deduction going on in the game itself anyway. Oh, mate, no, no, no. That's the heart of the game. That is when I was reading it. That was the bit that had me absolutely like wetting myself saying, that is brilliant. Imagine you're there. Let's say you're the Berbers. And there's a block of three Berbers one side of the port's being attacked and a block of three Berbers the other side. And if you can get the Berbers to win, you're going to score seven points, right? And the captain calls open voting and you've got a strong card in your hand and everyone's going... We can't let the Berbers win. Even if you're on the same side of them for this particular one, you can't. we have to play shields and you're there going, oh no. <laughs> because if I play it, I'm going to score seven points and that's fantastic. And then I've got a seven block built up and anywhere I can get the Berbers to win around it, I'm going to score eight points and nine points. What, a, what an opportunity. But if I play this huge sword card, everyone's going to blackmail me about being Berbers. And I'm going to end up handing so much money out because they're going to know that moment. Oh, what do I do? What do I do? That is what it's all about for me. I could see moments in this game of like a car getting put down, everyone standing up and going, it's you, you are them, you are them. I'm not, I'm not. I just want my side to score points. Ah, I could see that all going on. Maybe if people are starting to sniff around who you are, you chuck in a sword card because you go, well, all right, yeah. And you try and get them to, to blackmail you that you're the Berbers because you're not. Or is that too much of a risk to take? That whole thing is the heart of the game to me. So, no, I thought it would be more subtle. Yet yeah, you don't want to play that sword card because then everybody will know that you're the Berbers and they will actively stop you doing anything more. They'll stop you. They'll gang up on you. But they can't. 
Because there's always going to be two of them on the same team as you in every battle. So someone's going to have to help you at some point. And that's it. You can't be too obvious. You cannot take those points. Or can you? More of a question rather than uh, I haven't made up my mind on it. I was just wondering if it was too much. So the look of the game, Ronan, and the feel of the game from an aesthetic point of view, it doesn't feel that thematic. But how did you feel about the theme within the gameplay itself. We just talked about Dutch East Indies. And for me, whenever anyone tries to make a pirate game, that just means the board is going to look like the sea. There's going to be some plastic or wooden ships in there. And we're going to be doing some trading. And there might be a little bit of PvP combat. That doesn't make a pirate game to me. And to be honest, I'm kind of sick and tired of seeing games like that. They're all the same. The ship's sailing around and you're not actually being a pirate. It's just pick up and deliver or trading or resource management. In my head, this is a proper pirate theme because pirates are not good people. This is a game of shifting alliances, of blackmailing each other, of jumping on opportunities, of putting each other under pressure. That feeling of, I can't reveal too much. Surely that's what it felt like to be a pirate captain of like, well, I can't really tell you what's going on. I can't tell you what's going on. I can't trust anyone. This is a pirate theme. Plastic ships pick up and deliver. I don't think pirates were picking up and delivering spices. I don't know. They might have been nicking them. They might have been killing a few people. But oh. yeah, we try and play these pirate games as if they were all merchants. This is why it's at. This is this den of thieves. Trust no one. No honor amongst us. I think this really generates a real pirate theme for me, Sean. But anyway, what's your overall thoughts on pirate? My overall thoughts, Ronan, is I'm going to urge people to look beyond the not perfect components, the not perfect rulebook, the slightly bland-looking feel of the game. Look beyond that, because I think what you're going to find underneath is a rich, inviting, agonising game and that is why i'm going to give parlay a thumbs up and a treasure oh for sure i can imagine this being on one of the small booths with this look where the counters look like tiddlywinks the board is just this brown x board it's going to be a small company from the rule book maybe the English isn't perfect i can see this as being an easy easy overlook i am going to say to people and echo sean Go and have a look at Lunatic Board Games and Parley because the gameplay has got my head flipping, flippity jibbity dibbles. Treasure. Okay, so for my next game, we're going to Cuckoo. Cuckoo, Cuckoo. From Mind Fitness Games, designed by Josef Dorsonski. Three to five players, and you're going to pay 12 euro for this one at the show. It's basically blackjack. You're going to try and get to a 21. So why are you trying to get to a 21? Well, you've got some ravens and they're attacking you. Their values on their cards is 17 to 19. You're going to have a bunch of sparrow cards. Now, these all come in different colors and they all values 1 to 8. Blue has the most cards and white has the fewest with just two. On a turn, you're going to be dealt to six of these sparrow cards. You're going to keep three and pass three on. So you're going to have a hand of six. Then you're going to take two owl cards and put them in front of you. The owl cards go from 10 to 17 in value. And what you're basically trying to do is make sure that you're trying to get as close to 21 with the owl cards. There are cuckoo tokens that range from one to six. 
and with your sparrow cards. So on a turn, you're going to either put a sparrow in the flock, i.e. in front of you, and that will form part of your hand trying to get to 21. You can discard a sparrow, but to discard it, you must match either the colour or the number of the previous card in the discard pile. If you can't do any of these, you must discard your whole hand and you're going to pick up the highest value of those cuckoo tokens. Then you're going to choose which owl you want to use and you're trying not to bust and go over 21. And you're going to try and get as close to 21 as possible. You flip over a raven card. If you've managed to beat that raven card, let's say you flip over the 18 and you've got a total of 19 in front of you, you win, you get a silver coin. If you get 21 exactly, you get a gold coin. And... At the end of four rounds, if somebody has managed to get 21 four times, they win the game outright. Otherwise, you convert the gold coins that you've got into silver and it's whoever's got the most silver. That is cuckoo. And it is all a bit cuckoo, isn't it, Roland? This is the most anti-Sean game I think I've ever <laughs> known you to choose. I can't believe you put this on here. It's uh, expanding my uh, horizons. Well, that's good. That's good. I was just a little bit shocked that you chose a funny, not exactly trick taker, which is kind of like a guessing game because you really don't know what's going on. There's a cross between 21 and Uno with really weird scoring. This this is what you chose? Yeah, why not? Why not? It's got a little bit of buzz coming into the show. I think it debuted in Gen Con, and I actually have heard a few people talking about it, saying that it's actually quite a lot of fun to play. And so I thought I'd give it a go and do a bit of research on it. And yeah, cuckoo. Yeah, and almost everyone who's been talking about it, I think Tom Vassell's review is going to be the most widely watched. Has gone. It's a weird game. <laughs> Uh, Tom was like, it's good weird, like he wants to play it a few more times. And a lot of people are just going, it's weird, weird. And all these games were guessing whether they're treasure or traps, but this is a real stab in the dark. Because it seems so odd that if players have played it, are taking a while to judge whether it's good or not. Us having not played it, um, okay. One of the things that we have to mention is that there's a real disparity in the components. The cards look cool, the artwork's you know, good and bright and all the rest of it, but all the tokens are like miscut and really bad quality. And it's a funny attempt of a of a production with weird rules and a funny production mm. values, and it's like kind of all over the place. Sean. Yeah, I, I've written down there's definitely a component issue with the game. So that doesn't fill you with confidence. The artwork kind of looks like Angry Birds, that kind of like comedy, cartoony artwork. So, But not zany. Not, not zany. zany. God forbid. Don't say the word zany. <sighs> nearly. 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 <laughs> okay. Uh, I, thank you for bringing it to my attention. If it should ever hit me in the face, I'll say, oh, yeah, cuckoo, I'll remember it. I'll say, oh, I'll give it a go and see what it's like. But I am not going to be picking this one up, and I'm going to go trap for cuckoo. Just uh, too odd to live, too weird to die. <laughs> okay, so for me, I think it's an interesting take on Blackjack. I think, I'm not sure how much control you actually have. I think there is a certain 
draw in what cuckoo token do you take? Do you manipulate so you get an early cuckoo and you get the six because you need the six? Or do you take a gamble and go further in? I don't know. I think it's probably, as Rona said, not for me. I don't think it's a massive trap, but it is a trap. And it's something I would play, but I wouldn't buy. Or cuckoo. Okay, we're going to move on to Dragon Castle, two to four player game, 30 to 45 minutes from Horrible Games, with a trio of fairly decorated designers here. Hjalmar Hack, who designed Photosynthesis, which is making a big splash at the moment. Luca Ricci, who designed Vampire Elf and Cthulhu. And Lorenzo Silva, who's designed a lot of games, including Potion Explosion, Steam Park and Dungeon Fighter. For the game, you're going to construct a castle of what are, in effect, Mahjong tiles in various colours, and some are special tiles, some are standard tiles. And then on the player's turn, you're going to be deconstructing that castle to build your own patterns on your board. And you're trying to build up groups of the same colour, so you can flip them and score points. And there's also a mechanism which you're going to be able to lay shrines when you flip these tiles, and they're going to score you a few points. But how are we going to do this? You can take two identical tiles, from the castle as long as one is in the current top layer and when you're laying tiles on your board you can put them anywhere on your board there's no restriction there are reasons why you might want to build them in certain shapes on your board which we'll come to later on you can take a tile and a shrine which again will allow you to score or you can take one tile and discard it for vp now when you take tiles and add them onto your board, if you make a group of the same colour that is four or more, you're going to consolidate that colour, which means you're going to flip them all face down. The more tiles of the same colour in that group that you manage to join together, the more points you're going to score. And then if you have shrines, you're able to place them on any of the flip tiles there and then, and the shrines are going to score you at the end for what height they're at. So that's one of the reasons why you might want to place tiles on top of each other, but you can never place a tile on top of a face-up tile. So you're going to have to consolidate groups and then build up from there and build on. And when you do consolidate, the tiles do not have to be on the same height as each other, as long as they're, if you look straight down, connected, that is absolutely fine. I said there were special tiles that are rarer in certain configurations. They're going to allow you to place two shrines when you consolidate them, with an opportunity, obviously, for scoring more points. There are some variation game to game. They're brought in by spirit cards, which are going to give you abilities, special powers. You can be able to trigger. There's one available per game for all the players. And also, if you wish to, there's one dragon card available for all the players. And what the dragon cards are going to do is going to give you end game VPs. And that is really going to drive how you might want to build the shape of your own particular board. Because they're going to score you for things like face up tiles that are left or how many separate stacks of tiles you have, or for having certain face-up tiles in columns and rows, or shrines that have been built in columns and rows. And I think those dragon cards are going to give some variety of how you're going to build your own castle. Sean, dragon castle is obviously a take on Mahjong, where they've added in a, a dust in a sprinkling of a few different elements. First off, it looks beautiful and i don't mean just with the really striking artwork i mean the spectacle the thick playing pieces the artwork on the cards is beautiful i think it's a beautifully crafted game from what i can see oh i love the aesthetic of it all the way through every piece of it i think and it adds to that sort of soothing mahjong zen feel of oh we're just cool we're chilling we're taking our time playing a bit puzzly it puts you into the right mind space for where this game sits so i've never actually played mahjong 
I was going to ask you that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I haven't actually played it, so I can't really compare it to it. But what I think in my peanut brain elevates it above the likes of a Mahjong is those careful, special... Careful, careful when you're I attacking know, the classics. I know, I know. <laughs> because I've never really had the interest of playing something like Mahjong. Yeah, there was a puzzle there. As you said, it, was, it wasn't the deepest puzzle, but it was a time passer. But this one, the special tiles, the spirit cards... And the dragon cards, they make it more of a game that I'd be interested in just in a straight-up puzzle. In terms of Mahjong, it is one of those games that I think is, unless someone introduces it to you, it, it doesn't really appeal. It's definitely a game that draws you in. And when you start playing, you want to play it more and more. It becomes very addictive because the puzzle is just enough to be like, oh, I can do this better. But hopefully, they've encapsulated that hook and that addictiveness off Mahjong, but they've also tried to add in the addictiveness of something else that you see all over the place, especially if you ever go by public transport. And that's the match three aspect of outside of gaming, Candy Crush and the likes, or inside gaming, Potion Explosion, where you're trying to get these colours matched up together. And that is an also, whatever it is in our human brain that hooks in, that is satisfying, that you go, oh, there you go, there's six together. Click, 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 click. Oh, a little bit of dopamine, a little bit of, oh, they're trying to marry together two separate real classic hooks from Gaming Shore. That, that can be a dangerous combination. Yeah, there could be some addiction to this bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. I'm feeling positive. What are your thoughts on right, Dragon Right, sure. I think the spectacle looks great. I think the art looks great. The puzzle was interesting, but what elevated it into something that I'm interested in, as I said, are those cards and those special tiles. So for me, it's going to be a treasure. I'm rolling in the echo chamber here. Dragon Castle's total treasure for me. Looks like it's going to be an absolutely brilliant, puzzly experience, and I'm fully on board. Okay, so we're going into Deadline from WizKids, designed by Dan Schnake and Adam West. Two to four players and coming in about the 30 euro mark at the show. So what you are, you're kind of film noir, super sleuths, and you're trying to solve a crime. And the box comes with 12 different crimes that you're going to solve. How do you do this? Well, you need to lo lay out some locations to investigate on a table. Each of these locations has symbols on them. And you need to match those symbols to unlock them. How do you match them? Well, you're going to have a deck of cards with those symbols on them. And they also have hot tip icons, which I'll explain later. So with those symbols, you're going to play a card with a symbol that matches one of the locations. Then subsequent players are going to, to play other cards. But the, the trick here is you've got to play over them with a matching symbol on one side of the card or play into an empty space. A little bit of a puzzle aspect to play in those. Once you've got all the symbols for a location, you're going to flip the card over and you're going to read the text that it says on the back. And either you're going to bring another location into play or it's going to tell you to do something else. As I mentioned hot tips earlier. There are four hot tip tokens. And what they're going to allow you to do is bring more cards to your hand or get rid of bad plot twist cards. Now, bad plots are cards that come into your hand and that's a constant thorn in the side, so they could add additional thimbles to investigations or other horrible things. If a player, a player can't play one of their cards, then they must add one of the bad plot twists into the player area. Each player also has a special power, which they can use. 
And every time that you fail to investigate a location, you're going to get a bullet token. Should you get three bullet tokens, the highest value location goes out of the game completely. When all locations have been investigated or discarded, you check through a question book to see if you can answer the questions in the book and you score points off the back of that. Randall, what did you think about Deadline? I love the theme, Sean. I love the idea of it. I love this kind of 1930s hard-boiled crime noir sort of thing. And I love the characters. They're, they're all clearly actors from around there. Peter Lorre and Spencer Tracy and Ava Gardner and all the rest of it. And the whole look of it. For some reason, that really charms me. Maybe it's watching old movies with my mother when I was a kid. But I recognise all the characters and I'm like, yeah, okay, this is cool. This has drawn me in. Because... The actual gameplay itself, as you mentioned right at the beginning, is very puzzly. And without that schmoozing of theme, it could have felt a bit dry. Yeah, I was kind of, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. Yeah, I, I agree. I like the theme. The box looks really cool. Even the hot tips, they flip over and it's a match. Very thematic. Do you think that the theme within the game itself holds up? Do you feel right the way through that you're a detective in 1920s America? Being a detective is about solving puzzles. Yeah? Yeah. So think that every time you solve a puzzle it's going to give you a burst of theme and you're going to get this information then you have to have a little think about it what does that actually mean and then you're going to have a little choice of where to go next and, and then a little burst of information now that choice of where to go next is going to be both thematic and puzzly and i think there's a pull between the two so kind of in that yeah, okay, I'm solving a puzzle, which is what a detective would do, and then I'm having to pass the information, the imperfect information I do get, to try and answer questions at the end. I think at the end you're going to get a thematic payoff because it's not then a puzzle, it's a question regarding the thematic information you've got. But I'm not solving this puzzle by myself. I'm solving it as part of a group, and I'm not sure how thematic that feels with the card play. I need to go into the communication in a second, but just, yeah, I like the puzzle feels like a detective. I'm not sure this group puzzle feels very detective-y. I was right with you, but I actually do feel like the the group does feel detective because obviously you're working with different aspects. We've decided detective as a word because I wasn't yeah, sure. Yeah, I was yeah, yeah. fair enough. I just followed suit. <laughs> yeah, all good character. detective is now a word. Carry cool, on. nice. Okay, so I feel really detective when I'm working in a group because... Oh, it could, you're my favourite little detective <laughs> could be like working with the CSI department, other investigators, Bobby on the street, that kind of thing. I, that's the way I was going with it. But this one negative, 12 investigations, basically you're going to play this game 12 times. I'm a bit shaky about that in terms of how much am I going to get out of this game for the money I'm spending. Yeah, I think it's good value. You reckon? Yeah, I do. I'm all right with it. I mean, if you look at exit the game, whatever, you're paying 15 euro for one game. It's fun, so that's that's good enough. 30 euro for 12 games, I mean... I know some people are going to say, no, it's not good enough. That's fine. It's going to be a personal opinion on this issue. People don't accept legacy games of value for money. There's all sorts. For me, it does represent value to get 12 games for three or four people for 30 euro. What's your stand on that? For me, exit would have to maybe be something that somebody buys for me. But 
Deckscape. Is that a not very subtle hint for Christmas? Yeah, buy me that. Okay. Uh, okay, Deckscape or Unlock, where you can, or it can be recycled. Maybe I'm going to wait for a trade. So I haven't taken the plunge and actually bought any of these. Twelve's kind of like a number. I think, yeah, you know what? If I get 12 games out of it, I'd be okay. Well, how many cases do you get in Sherlock Holmes? You get 10, but you put so much into those. I think this is short games. I think with Sherlock Holmes, it's, what, it's 10 really long experiences. I feel like these nits are getting picked a little here. <laughs> okay. I, here's one issue, though, I was kind of skirting around earlier is, well, you're not allowed to say exactly what cards you've got in your hand when you're trying to fulfil that puzzle element between you. And as you put the cards down to cover other symbols, there's kind of two things there. Firstly, how do you stop cheating comments? How do you stop someone going, oh, I have more than one gun but fewer than three and all that sort of crap and someone putting something down as they're going to cover a, a symbol up that yeah if you don't want it covered how are you going to stop yourself going <gasps> no or them going hold it left or right left or right and people nodding or shaking their head as they do it it's this imperfect information thing where when you're choosing where to go you're, you're looking for guidance from people like well, what cards you got in your hand and they can't tell you and you're like, well, they're going to tell you, aren't they? They're obviously going to tell you. They're not going to tank the game. Oh, I'll just guess where we're going then, shall I? Oh, I may know a little about the red cardinal that flew into the Empire State Building, poking my eye the whole time. Uh, you're going to cheat. It's just the way it is. You are going to cheat. you got to go one way or the other. You even say, you know what? Don't say exactly what's in your hand, but we can pretty much. But that's that. rubbish. But or you, you you have to say, well, no, you, you don't give that information. You can say, listen, not yeah. I'd rather not you not cover up that particular symbol. But other than but that, that's I'm cheating. Not, yeah, like the you know, imagine you're the person who's know. got to choose where to go, yeah. and everyone sits there stone faced, going, right. So where should we go? And everyone goes, can't say. Oh, what? Oh, don't know where to go then do i i guess you can look at your own hand and if you're lucky enough to have all the cards you might go oh i'll go there or you're guessing and go well i've got two of the four we can go there what if no one else has got them it's just then you've wasted that clue and it's from no information and the information is available to the team you're just not allowed to share it uh, that always is a stumbling block for me in games to be honest with you yeah yeah i can see where it would be an issue but I'm, I'm hoping that it all comes clearer once we start eating that pudding Roland. <laughs> there's a lot of that going on right <laughs> despite a couple of negatives thrown in there i am absolutely charmed by deadline and i am very much looking forward to trying to solve these puzzles and these cases and i am going to go treasure on deadline sean so for me deadline it holds the theme for me i like the puzzle and the cooperative nature of the game and i'm going to say treasure too so it's a double treasure how lovely Indeed. right my last game of this episode is Otis, two to four players around 60 minute playtime from Pearl Games. Designed by Claude Lucini, it's his first game. Each player is going to run their own team of divers, which is based in the 23rd century when sea levels have risen dramatically. And we are going to be diving into the sea to salvage resources for a colony, which we're all going to be supplying the same colony, but we've got our own team. We have our own private board. There are eight divers on that board and they're in a column and you're going to have five spaces under the sea corresponding to different depths and you have three spaces at the top and those divers are on the surface. 
each of those five levels that are under the sea have got what's called a key on the left-hand side. And on your turn, you're going to choose one of your five keys, ones that are available to you, and you're going to push it over to the right. The first thing that does is activates a sponsor special power. There's a shared colony board. There are sponsors which correspond to the levels one to five. So if I choose my level two key, level two sponsor fires off, and that's going to give me a little bonus. Then, each of my eight divers have got individual powers, and whichever diver is on the depth level that I have activated the key for, they are going to activate their power. Now, quite often, that's going to be to put a resource onto that depth. Now, why do I want to put a resource on the depth? There are three different types of resources in the game. There are contracts available to everyone. There are three of them. And what you're trying to do to fulfill a contract and score some points is collect whatever pattern of resources is on the contract on one depth level in your board on your C. So if you push a blue across level two and there's a contract and these two blues and the green, you're obviously trying to get another blue and a green in the same depth with that resource. You'll fulfill that contract immediately and score some points. Other things your divers can do are resources are not just used for contracts. You can sell them for money and money will allow you to upgrade your divers, you flip them over and their special power becomes slightly more powerful. You have a mechanic. Now, the mechanic will allow you to, there are batteries in the game. When you activate your diver, if you use a battery, depending upon what level your mechanic's on, you can move that diver up or down a certain number of levels of depth, which will allow you then to control slightly which resources are going into which level and which powers you're using. You can also use money to upgrade your hacker. Now, why do you want to do that? When you use a key on your turn, it goes to the bottom of your board and it goes into a row. And only when you fill that row up to the space where your hacker is, which will be five along to start with, will you get all your keys back and your depths will be available to you. So using the example I've been banging on about, if I use my key number two, then depth level two is out of action for me until I reset my keys. By upgrading my hacker, it will move to the left and now I only use four keys and they get reset and left again three keys and reset so it makes me rotate my keys much more quickly by using my hacker you also have an explorer who can explore they will then get reward ties which will give you extra batteries or extra money whatever it might be you've got a spy who might be able to give you a hand of private contracts that only you can fulfill not just the public ones whenever you've activated the diver what they then do is turn to the top of the column and push any of the divers below them back down so you start filling up your depths again and you're constantly rotating them however one more use for those batteries if you use one you can activate your o2 reserve and your diver will remain on that same depth which might be handy for you whenever anyone has scored 18 victory points that triggers the last round and then we're going to end the game sean Otis is quite overwhelming initially. Firstly, because that push system is different to anything I've seen exactly in another game, but also because the looks are quite overwhelming. It looks beautiful, but there's an awful lot going on. I don't think it looks beautiful, mate. I think no, not really. No, it doesn't. It doesn't sing to me. The boards are quite nice. Okay, you get a feeling for what what's going on in the game and the theme of the game, but. There's so many different colour cubes and different things all over it. I think it starts to get a bit a bit cluttered for me. Well, I can't agree with you. <laughs> I don't know what else I can say about that. For me, it definitely it triggered my eye and I was looking at it going, yeah, I do feel the kind of nautical theme here and it all worked together. So, okay, disagreement on the looks. In terms of mechanisms then, that push mechanism... 
slightly reminiscent of Ulm or not? There's elements of it. I mean, it's mechanically similar in that you're pushing things to one side, but I think the interesting mechanism for me, the the hacker action in where you're going to recycle your actions a lot quicker, I found that a very interesting mechanism. It's only 18 points. It's only a 60-minute game, so you are racing to fulfil the contracts, but there's the pull there to... I want to upgrade my hacker. I want to upgrade my mechanic. I want to get all my divers upgraded because I get better and better. But is it worth doing all those upgrades? Or to what level is it worth doing those upgrades? When other people might just be sniping in and grabbing the contracts constantly and scoring more points than me. I love that that thought of engine building to engine running that I've been going on about for the last few episodes. There's a nice tension there for me. I wasn't really feeling it. I didn't think that there was that many choices, especially because you're going to get fewer and fewer each round. And you're not choosing your your last couple of actions unless you've moved that hacker in. I I wasn't feeling the tension there at all, Ronan. I don't know what you want out of a Euro shot. I don't know what you want. You've got the ability to get batteries, so you move your divers up and down, so you use them on a different level. So, all right, I might be stuck that I can do my three or my four, but what if I use a battery and I can activate my three but i move that diver back up to two and then kick off from there uh, i think that's all in there i think it, I, I don't know what you want that management just of the levels really just triggering my mind we, we look like we're coming at this from different ends so do you want to sum up your thoughts on otis yeah i think the theme kind of got brought me into it the mechanisms the some of them i I could take or leave. As I said, I really like the action selection and condensing the the time between those action selections. But if you don't do that quickly, your first couple of rounds is going to get a bit stale if you don't have the manipulation available to you and you have to use certain actions that you don't necessarily want. It didn't sing to me, Ronan. I I don't think it's going to be a bad game. I will play it, but for now, it's a trap. Wow, I'm shocked. This sung to me on all eight levels of its depths and this is a treasure pulled up from the bottom of the sea 100 percent. yeah you're a big old wrong one on this one probably probably i also kind of struggled to get into my head it was another one of those so maybe i've, I've got to try it and actually yeah it wasn't an easy rules read yeah and the presentation didn't make it easier to pass it did take a bit of okay what and really concentrating to get it over. Maybe that will hold it back a bit, but uh, some people just look at Ruben and go, oh, this looks tricky. Great, I'll go for it. I like a tricky game. <laughs> Fair enough. But yeah, definitely uh, Otis. It's okay. Your, so Sean, your final one. It's not tricky. <laughs> it's, a, <No. laughs> it's a roll and write. It's Harvest Dice coming from Grey Fox Games, designed by Danny Devine, two to four players, and it's coming in at 15 euro at the show. So what do you have in the box? Well, you're going to have dice. You're going to have three green, three red, and three orange. And they represent lettuce, tomatoes, and carrots. <laughs> you're also going to have uh, two pads. They're going to be a standard one and the advanced one. We're going to be talking about the standard. And four pencils. Nice of them to do that. Oh, and there's a piggy starter player marker. There you go. So on the pads, there is picted a garden. And this comes in a three by six grid. You also have areas that will give you uh, multiplying for each of the different, well, vegetables and fruit. People keep saying vegetables, but tomatoes are fruit. And thanks for that correction. Thank you. And there's going to be a little bonus when you can't really do anything off to the side. And that's called a piggy bonus. Okay. So you're going to roll your dice. You want to select one of those dice and place it in the column in which it it can be placed. So four must be placed in the four column, etc. Now, 
if you are going to place subsequent vegetables or fruit of the same type, they must be placed orthogonally. So obviously a lettuce must be placed next to a lettuce. If you can't place, then you shade in the pig bonus and that you shade the amount of that, depending on the pips on the die. So there's going to be one dice left at the end of everybody's turn. That one is going to influence the multiplier. So if it goes into lettuces, now every lettuce is worth two points. The game finishes when one player fills their grid and you get points for the veg and fruit, the multiplier, the pig track, and finishing your rows of vegetable and fruit. Harvest dice, Ronan. <laughs> uh, yeah, here's the thing. I don't... The theme... I just... Sean, help me, man. Um, oh, God. You could tie the theme together. You're planting and... Yeah, you got to batch your, your various vegetables and fruit together. But they're not just unthematic. Yeah. Like, why, why am I... Why do I want to grow lettuce and tomatoes and carrots? <laughs> I also didn't think that this game is going to be any different from game to game. There's nothing in there that su- suggests any kind of difference. I think you're going to be playing the same game over and over and over and over again, and someone's going to eke a win by having, I don't know, slightly more carrots. Yay. Do you know what you've just done? What for done? me, is described every role and right game that I've ever played. <sighs> I've never found one that I thought that would be different next game, or that's interesting, or yeah, no. Quicks. I didn't like Quicks. It was one of the first ones that came out, and it was one of the most interesting ones, and I didn't like it. And any other ones I've played since then, like no siesta, whatever, just no interest. No, I take this and it becomes a letter. So I, I roll. There's a four there, which is useful to me, or there isn't. There's not a lot clever I can do with these things. And this has even less than other games. I don't... What, there's hype for this game? I don't understand. I completely agree with you, and I have Octodice, which, yeah, again, agree with you. I don't get a different game from time to time, but there's at least things to do and more than things to chain together. And I don't think there's any agency in the game. But at least I'm having fun and I'm kind of thinking about what I'm doing. On this one, you either can lay the dice and you're not even putting the dice into your thing. You're drawing pictures of a carrot and drawing pictures of a... That didn't help. That didn't help. That didn't help. No. This is a man who can't draw. Uh, uh, You either can put that vegetable or fruit into your garden or you can't. And if you can't, you have to put it into your pig pen. So where's the choice? There is no choice. Yeah, the pig. There is no game. The pig. There is no hope. If you if you get to the end of the rows of the pig in the pig area, you can manipulate the dice. But at that point, I don't think you'd care. Fifteen euro as well for some pencils and a pad and and six dice. I don't think that's an outrageous price. It's not forty euro. I mean, there's a box as well, and they've got to ship it around. Fifteen mm. euros, okay. I was thinking. What do, what do you want it to be? Eight. Three euro. Eight. No. It's not going to happen, is it? You're going to get sensible. But it was trap, trap, trap. What a terrible way to end the show. Trap. Okay, so after this brief musical interlude, we will be back with our outro. We'll see you then. So there you go. 12 more treasures or traps unveiled for you through the fogs of Essen lunacy. Next time round, we are going to be reviewing six games we've actually played, Sean, so that'll make a change. 
Yeah, especially after the weird collection we brought to the table today. That was an odd section of games, I have to say. <laughs> Much trappier than the first episode, but that's all right. That's okay. You can't buy every game. It's cool. Uh, take these with a pinch of salt. Uh, thank you very much, Sean. Thank you very much, Ronan. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you very shortly with some reviews of the likes of Flip Ships and Grifters and Hanamakoji and some other good stuff. Very good. And as always, we are very proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself for gaming goodness galore. If you wish to contact us, we can be found on email at thegamepitpodcast.gmail.com and, of course, on our Board Game Geek Guild. We are on social media. We have a Facebook page. We are on Twitter at Game Pit Podcast, and we also have an Instagram account. If you wish to download the episodes, we are on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. Thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. Weird boy, weird selection boy, odd boy.